All roads lead to power. And on this show, we're going to break that idea down a little bit. What is power? Who has it? How do you get it? We'll deconstruct everything from motivation and mental health to anti-racism and addiction. Ultimately, the goal is to give you the tools and strategies that you need to live your most powerful life, being a force for good in the world and impacting the people around you in a positive way. Powerful is brought to you by me, your host, Jeff Kula. I help people change and build incredible teams. Welcome to the show. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Because the so-called real world of men and money and power comes merrily along on the fuel of fear and anger and frustration and craving and the worship itself. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline. If people don't learn power, people don't wake up. If they don't wake up, they get left out. Welcome to episode two, where we're going to be digging into the topic of personal power and exploring it from a few different angles. I believe that a hyper-focus on personal power is one of the biggest problems in mainstream self-help and self-improvement and the various authors and frameworks that are out there. And so oftentimes I'll be a little bit critical of the Tony Robbins of the world or the Rachel Hollis's or the people who are espousing that everything is inside of your control and you have 100% autonomy over what happens to you. Uh, Of course, personal power is a critical element of how we interact with the world and develop relationships with people. And we can't pretend that people aren't responsible for their own power Because if we do that, then how can we think about accountability, freedom, and choice? But ignoring the complexity and nuances of the other types of power, whether it's the role that you find yourself in or whether or not you belong to a marginalized group, you know, that's equally unhelpful. The key, of course, and something that we'll be exploring in this podcast is to understand how personal power interacts with the other types of power to create a power dynamic or a power differential in our lives so that we can clearly take ownership and responsibility over what's ours and have other people or systems or institutions take responsibility for what's theirs. The argument that you're 100% responsible for what happens in your life is both dangerously wrong and unhelpful. It can easily be used to perpetuate oppression and marginalization and discount the responsibility of those with the power to make structural or systematic changes. We'll be digging into that in more detail in some coming interviews with folks who are doing really important anti-racism work in our schools. Uh, But let's talk a little bit about what is personal power. There's lots of different synonyms for it from freedom to choice to having options, you know, passion and perseverance and empowerment. Um, But really it comes down to this ability to have an influence and affect change in your world, not because of some role or membership that you have, but who you are as a person and the skills and the qualities and the attributes that you have that are portable to you that follow you everywhere. And we'll commonly refer to these qualities and attributes as personality or motivation or charisma. Um, And oftentimes we'll confuse our personal power with our role or our status power, or we'll ignore how they interact and relate with each other. So this episode is going to be about how can we understand the relationship between our personal power and these other types of power and and dig into some of the mis- misconceptions around it that aren't actually that helpful, that are that are keeping us from some of the important conversations that we need to have. Um, so let's let's dig into it. Let's talk about Angela Duckworth and her 2013 TED Talk that's been viewed something like 18 million times. She makes the case that grit is the missing ingredient that separates the successful from the unsuccessful. And so she's gone all in on personal power. Um, here's a snippet of her talk. When I was 27 years old, 
and left a very demanding job in management consulting for a job that was even more demanding, teaching. I went to teach seventh graders math in the New York City public schools. And like any teacher, I made quizzes and tests. I gave out homework assignments. When the work came back, I calculated grades. What struck me was that IQ was not the only difference between my best and my worst students. Some of my strongest performers did not have stratospheric IQ scores. Some of my smartest kids weren't doing so well. And that got me thinking. The kinds of things you need to learn in seventh grade math, sure, they're hard. Ratios, decimals, the area of a parallelogram. But these concepts are not impossible. And I was firmly convinced that every one of my students could learn the material if they worked hard and long enough. So right here, right out of the gates, we see that the frame of reference that Angela is bringing to this conversation is one of hyper-individualization, that success is primarily a matter of working long enough or working hard enough. Having perseverance is a phrase that she's going to use a fair bit. After several more years of teaching, I came to the conclusion that what we need in education is a much better understanding of students and learning from a motivational perspective, from a psychological perspective. And again, we see this focus on motivation and psychological perspective as being individualized, as being an issue in the student who's sitting right in front of me, the student who's taking this exam. And at this point, she seems to be ignoring any of the larger systematic things that might be at play for the individual student. In education, the one thing we know how to measure best is IQ. But what if doing well in school and in life depends on much more than your ability to learn quickly and easily? On this point, I think Angela and I probably both have a very similar perspective. I think it does depend on a lot more than your ability to learn quickly or easily. And I also think that it, t it takes a lot more than just individual character traits and level of personal power that you may or may not have, not to totally discount it. That's not what we're here to do, but to question it, to be a little bit critical, to examine it, to make sure that it makes sense and that we're not making policy decisions or systematic decisions based on this unfounded notion. So I left the classroom and I went to graduate school to become a psychologist. Uh-oh. I started studying kids and adults in all kinds of super challenging settings. And in every study, my question was, who is successful here and why? My research team and I went to West Point Military Academy. We tried to predict which cadets would stay in military training and which would drop out. We went to the National Spelling Bee and tried to predict which children would advance farthest in competition. Now, at this point, if you're thinking, hmm, I'm not sure that those two samples are representative of mainstream society. You know, people who have already made their way to West Point Academy are probably pretty driven individuals, probably pretty gritty, probably have persevered. Uh, people who make it to the National Spelling Bee have probably spent a lot of time practicing and persevering through their spelling. We studied rookie teachers working in really tough neighborhoods, asking which teachers are still going to be here in teaching by the end of the school year. And of those, who will be the most effective 
at improving learning outcomes for their students. Now we start to get a bit more interesting. We're looking at a sample of teachers and whether or not they their level of greediness will predict whether or not they will make it through the school year and how effective they will be with the, the learning outcomes for their students. And we'll talk a little bit more about this type of research in later episodes, but this is getting a little bit more useful. We partnered with private companies asking, which of these salespeople is going to keep their jobs? And who's going to earn the most money? In all those very different contexts, one characteristic emerged as a significant predictor of success. And it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. Just to let you know, whenever I hear someone make a claim that they've reduced some of the complex phenomenon down to one causal factor, the hairs on the back of my neck start to stand up a little bit and I start to be really curious about how they came to that conclusion and whether we're dealing with data that's correlated data, whether it's causal, data. And anytime we take a study like the studies that Angela is referring to here uh, that are snapshot in time studies, I, I really start to question it because in order to determine the effects of something like grit on someone's life, we'd have to measure that over a lifetime and we'd have to see differences in, in grittiness over time as opposed to snapshot in time, which is at best we might be able to make some correlations. But let's listen to a bit more about what is grit and how does Angela define it here? Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future, day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years, and working really hard to make that future a reality. So there's a really important distinction that we need to make right off the bat, and we're 10 minutes into this podcast, so this is a great time to make it. Uh, this type of mindset, this type of framework that Ms. Duckworth is describing here, this grit mindset, is really rooted fundamentally in an individualistic worldview that people succeed on their own merit and that they just need to pick themselves up by the bootstraps and work a little bit harder and if you work a little bit harder you'll be successful and that that's the differentiator that's the the causal factor for success in life in these different arenas that she's been measuring whether it's the spelling bee or west point academy or teachers making it through a, a tough year right and so that's just really important for us to acknowledge is that this is built out of a worldview in which we are all individuals, hyper-individuals, and that success and failure is predominantly or entirely up to the individual. And so just to point that out, because that has implications for the rest of this conversation. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. A few years ago, I started studying grit in the Chicago public schools. I asked thousands of high school juniors to take grit questionnaires and then waited around more than a year to see who would graduate. Turns out that grittier kids were significantly more likely to graduate, even when I matched them on every characteristic I could measure. Things like family income, standardized achievement test scores, even how safe kids felt when they were at school. So it's not just at West Point or the National Spelling Bee that grit matters, it's also in school especially for kids at risk for dropping out. Now, here's one of the things that I think about when I hear about research like this. I think about the sample problem where if someone drops out, so who, or has already dropped out by the time you come and do the sample, you've already got to buy a sample. It's like the West Point Academy 
problem where anybody who makes it to that point probably has lots of grit and people who finish high school and those who don't we should be able to predict that they have more grit but what about those kids who dropped out when they were 13 14 15 and and hit the street because i've met some kids who have spent some time on the street i've worked with them in an addictions treatment program and they're some of the grittiest kids you're ever going to meet they probably have more perseverance in their little finger than I do in my entire body. And just because they're not making the outcomes maybe that we've identified, graduating high school as the goal here, uh, doesn't mean that they don't have a ton of grit and, and passion and perseverance for something. Oftentimes, maybe just keeping themselves alive and safe um, in, a, in a chaotic, uncertain, and dangerous world that they might inhabit. So take this kind of research with a bit of a grain of salt and remember that it's still pointed at individuals attaining some sort of predetermined outcome, whether that's, and really in a competitive environment seems to be the gist of, of most of this research, whether it's around salespeople competing with each other or kids competing at the National Spelling Bee. It's really about individuals competing for something. To me, the most shocking thing about grit is how little we know how little science knows about building it. Okay, I didn't set out to deconstruct Angela Duckworth's TED Talk on grit when I started this podcast, but if that's how we're going to start this show, then I guess we're just going to keep rolling with that. Uh, we actually do know quite a bit about what creates grit, and it's just not called grit. It's called resiliency, and there's a ton of research out there from the social sciences and psychology and actually even inside of education around resiliency and what grows it and what fosters it, and I'm sure it'll come up in other podcasts, but essentially we know that relationships are what foster resiliency, that life is a team sport, not an individual sport. And so we can actually look to a lot of the research around resiliency in kids experiencing adverse childhood experiences or trauma uh, to understand what grows resiliency and therefore what grows grit in young people. Every day, parents and teachers ask me, how do I build grit in kids? What do I do to teach kids a solid work ethic? How do I keep them motivated for the long run? The honest answer is, I don't know. So far, the best idea I've heard about building grit in kids is something called growth mindset. This is an idea developed at Stanford University by Carol Dweck, and it is the belief that the ability to learn is not fixed, that it can change with your effort. Okay, I'm going to save the deconstruction of growth mindset on this topic for another podcast. It, it comes up a lot, though, in my work in education where someone is spouting off about grit or growth mindset, and they're not bad concepts. These aren't wrong. They're just incomplete. They're insufficient. You know, I've, I've actually heard teachers say, well, I think Johnny's problem is that he just doesn't have a growth mindset for not realizing that that's your job is to foster a growth mindset, is to build the conditions, to build the context, to structure the environment and your relationship with Johnny in a way that fosters a growth mindset. Because the reason my two-year-old learned how to walk when he was a year old was because he had a relationship with myself and my wife and his siblings. And that relationship was one of support and encouragement and fostering risk-taking. And when he fell over, we'd pick him up and dust him off and clap and smile. And that's probably what Johnny's actually missing in the classroom if he's exhibiting this fixed mindset where he doesn't think he's capable or competent and doesn't want to take risks. It probably actually has nothing to do with Johnny and everything to do with the context that he's in, which, which shifts us away from 
you know, just thinking about personal power, just talking about grit and growth mindset or personality and individualizing this conversation. And we need to contextualize this conversation. We, we need to be able to have a nuanced conversation about the effect of the environment and the context and socialization on people and their capabilities and, and their performance in different areas. I don't want you to throw out all of this conversation about grit and growth mindset. It's useful, right? It's a nice frame to look through to help understand these issues around motivation and engagement and success, but they are in and of themselves incomplete because they're only focused on personal power. Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit and we're going to dig into personal power and some of these topics through a conversation with a good friend and colleague of mine. Vince Fowler spent time in the Canadian military. He was deployed in Somalia. He's been a competitive rugby player and coach, and now he coaches entrepreneurs and business owners on both the strategy, but also the, the mindset and the skills required to thrive in business and in life. So please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Vince Fowler. Vince, thanks for being here. I'm excited. Anytime in your, in your airspace is, a good, is, is time well invested. Well, I appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy and you've got lots on the go. So why don't we start there? Why don't we start with what you do and and then maybe a bit of the backstory about how you got to to this place? Uh, so today I would call myself a coach for entrepreneurs and I didn't get there overnight. Um, in the beginning, it was very much business coaching. Anybody who runs a business uh, of any size or industry didn't really matter. It was just, Hey, if you've got a business and you want to do better, uh, especially on the mechanical side of things, just, you know, the, the widgets that make businesses function, the strategy, those sorts of things. That's where I started in this industry in 2011, but I've morphed into more of the, what's the narrative of the owner running the business? Yes, we need strategy. So I have a background in athletics and military. So yes, strategy is critically important. However, the narrative within the athlete, within the soldier, that affects, definitely affects how they show up and do their job. So what about business? You know, um, where does that business owner take their stresses uh, to unpack them and discover them, reflect on whatever? Because to take them to their staff could create unnecessary uncertainty and unintentionally create unnecessary stress and so on. Or to take them home can also create stress at home and that's unnecessary. The spouse has no capacity to really help, but wants to, but eventually just says, you know what, I, I, I can't help you. Please don't bring, like, can we just talk about holidays or something else? So, so where does that, where does that business owner, where does that entrepreneur go to unpack? And as much as meaning, as much as friends have a well-meaning to support their entrepreneurial friend, you know, they, they don't understand all the nuances and, and the headspace and, you know, maybe what their advice would actually impact while, while well-meaning could actually do detriment. So, so that's where I come in. And I imagine a piece of that for the business owner or the person you're coaching is just a, a level of accountability for taking action and, and identifying objectives and, and things yeah. that they want to I mean, work. as a, as an employee, there's where we have accountability built into the infrastructure of an, any organization as a, as a business owner, there's not a lot of accountability because any business owner, if we're honest with ourselves, we've all rolled out of bed and said, nah, I'm not doing that today. I'm going to do something else, especially when it's hard things often. I just don't want to do that one today. So as soon as they voice what they want to accomplish to me, then I can 
help with the accountability, I'll, I'll get, I'll take my direction from them. How, okay, you, you want accountability? Okay, tell me what does that mean? How do I hold you accountable? Because that can, you know, that's, that means different things to everybody. So, mm-hmm. awesome. Let's talk a little bit about kind of pre coaching mm-hmm. days. And so you, you played rugby, you coached rugby, you, you were in the military, you served in Somalia. I Is did. That right? I did. Yeah. So did. how did those experiences maybe set you up? for coaching what are some of the things the most important lessons or things that you carried forward from those experiences um that, that still impact you now and so you know you're coming on the heels of me dismantling or unpacking angela duckworth's talk about grit and when I, as i was doing that i was like who should i talk to about grit and i'm like i should talk to vince valor because he's one of the grittiest guys i know and so um, i'm interested in how those experiences you know you're familiar with grit and and growth mindset and those pieces how those experiences kind of built that in you if they if they built that in you um i think unknowingly grit was just a part of my life growing up i grew up with just my mother then later when i was about three my grandmother and my aunt rolled in quite a bit so i was surrounded by three women growing up my mother my grandmother my aunt and uh, we moved a lot uh, so by the time i'm in grade six i've been to eight different schools sometimes like school one and school eight were the same school kindergarten grade six but eight different changes for a kid. So I used humor to navigate my way through new schools and my mouth wrote a few checks. My body had to cash. And so I I didn't, there was no male father figure. I don't know if that's super relevant, but I didn't have a dad to kind of help me navigate certain places. And my mom certainly didn't. But, um, I mean, there was a, there was an abundance of love and and care and attention. So that was, that was all good. But just because I moved so many times that probably helped with some, some grit I learned, my mom put me in sports and I went, I know I did hockey, I did baseball, but the sport I really fell in love with was rugby. And um, I remember my coach once, uh, you know, the coach puts out a bulletin, hey, if you're interested in rugby, meet us at the gym at this day, this time. So I show up and he goes, look, I don't cut anyone. You cut yourself if you don't come to practice. If you come to practice, I guarantee you play. And I, I was sweet, I'm in, I'm on the team. <laughs> I made the team when we haven't even practiced yet because I'll, I promise I'll never miss a practice. And our coach was, uh, he was just a real strong human being. He focused on play the game with class. We're going to do what's right. Um, you know, and we're not going to, we're not going to bitch about it kind of, kind of character. So I learned a lot about grit through my coach, Dave Chambers, who's still around, which is awesome. I get to creep him on Facebook and see he's doing amazing things with different athletes. And, um, he always had a way of just kind of keeping things in perspective. The, so the military pops into my mind back in this grade six moment when I'm sitting in class and a classmate does a presentation on D-Day. So we were all responsible for some sort of social studies presentation. His happened to be on D-Day. And up until that point, I knew nothing about the military. Didn't even know it existed. And he's talking about paratroopers jumping into Normandy, France on D-Day and all those things. And I'm like, that's it. So one of the downsides of being... Uh, being a single child home, um, some of the some of the realities of my upbringing was getting picked on a lot, and now I had no a I had no ability to t- defend myself. I remember asking my mom if I could go join boxing or something, and she wasn't an advocate of that. So I I didn't have a toolbox to deal with bullies, but seeing this paratrooper, I did. So I said, well, if I'm a paratrooper, a no one's going to beat me up ever again, not without taking a lot of beats themselves. Second, 
I now have the capacity to protect someone else who's getting picked on. Because up until then, nothing's more frustrating for me. The only thing more frustrating than getting picked on is watching someone else getting picked on with no ability to defend themselves. So that was my number one reason for for joining the military. And all inspired by these World War II paratroopers. So I joined cadets, did that for seven years, joined the military, did get my jumps, jump wings, did go off to the parachute regiment here in Canada. Lots of training in Canada, the United States, and different places, but my deployment into Somalia was my, that's my MBA. Learning and watching how people uh, recover from re- just unbelievable adversity, uh, whether it's us or the Somali people. Um, it was, yeah, it was my MBA in learning how to to move forward. And we're all faced with, re- you know, everybody, you know, you, me, people listening to your podcast, everyone's faced with adversity. It's what do we do about it? And I was impressed. I was also surprised how many people, like, for example, a particular sergeant who had, you know, all this training and this authority crumbled under pressure. And I'm like, you're our leader. Pull your shit together. Uh, (laughs) And um, so I learned it. I just learned what people could and couldn't do. And uh, that's always been a, a reflective place of me, both in rugby and the military, to go back to and say, okay, if I can do all of that, then, you know, this challenge I have facing me right now, I can do it. You know, we talk a lot uh, in the right use of power framework about personal power and it, the interplay between personal power and role power, which is authority kind of granted to you. Like you say, the sergeant had role power, which is why when you look at him and he's crumbling, you're like, what the shit? Like, get your shit together and and then status power which is membership in in different groups and so you know this episode i want to focus in a little bit on personal power and talk a little bit about because it's one of those things you know grit it would be a reflection of personal power or a growth mindset or we'll often just think about it as how motivated somebody is um how engaged they are with their own life are they somebody who sets goals and takes meaningful action towards them and so what kind of insights do you have or what kind of practices have you developed in life to keep access to your personal power it's because it's something that can fade and it's something that can be impacted by stress or by you know other people and so i'm curious about you know if it's from the military or from your rugby days that you can look into your life today and say this is a reflection of that this is a tool or a strategy that i've pulled forward yeah there's there's probably three places uh four so the first one of course military has given me a tremendous amount of context around personal power. It really is. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. And the military manufactures stressful, you know, go on deployment. uh, Well, prior to a deployment, you go on all these exercises to ramp up for a deployment to Somalia. So they manufacture stress and they continue to amp up that stress so that when we face it in Somalia, it's not new. So this continuously scenario training and creating stressful moments. So I'm a huge advocate for that. Uh, Same with athletics. Rugby practice is all about running different scenarios so that when we face those adversities on the field, um, we know what to do. And always comes back to what can you control? You know, what can I control in this moment? And my, as as a coach of athletics, I always tell my athletes, play whistle the whistle. You know, the whistle blows. We have a moment of time where, where, where we can kind of reflect on the last moments of play. And sometimes when someone's made a mistake, they're really, they can be really hard on themselves. Oh man, it's because of me that they've scored. And I would say, just play whistle the whistle. The, the, everything in the past is the past. We can't do anything about it. What can we control now? So I, I focus heavily on what can we control here and now. 
Are we going to focus on what we have or don't have? Are we going to focus on the score against us or the score for us? Are we going to focus on the athletes against us? Are we going to focus on the, the athletes we have and what can we do to, to support them? So that's the second place. The, the third place would be my son. When my son was born, he had unknowingly to us, he had a congenital heart defect and it's called a coarctation. So imagine a pinched garden hose. Water does not flow very well through a pinched garden hose. And that was his aortic artery. And while in the womb, the pulmonary artery bypasses this particular part of his aortic artery, which allowed him to receive oxygenated blood after his birth. Um, this bypass closes just naturally. And that's when we realized he's, you know, he's not well. And so the long and short of it is he's, he's now in cardiac arrest and I'm watching all this go down. He, he's nine today. He's super healthy. And, but that's a place I also go to and think, okay, look what we've accomplished since then. Like life could be a lot different. So can we save or can we be, can we be grateful and then reset, retool and continue to go forward? So I, I, I reflect on a lot of past things. So that's three. And then the fourth one is just the reading I've done over the years. The, it's just the, it's just the, uh, the benefit of my job of what I do. I read a lot, you know, Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworth read both of those books. I've read grit three times. I've read, uh, sorry, I've read, um, growth mindset by, um, Carol Dweck three times and other pieces of it in many more. And same thing with Angela Duckworth's book grit. I read that cover to cover twice. And then I've, I've certain chapters I've read, you know, five, six times. So I, I think I can learn from others and constantly navigating and constantly retooling and constantly trying it all comes back to if i can if i can believe it in my brain um then i can i can find a way to uh to make it happen yeah you recently finished up um some positive psychology yeah. courses and, and and so maybe talk a little bit about what that has done or added to your tool toolkit I've, I, so applied positive psychology, it comes out of the U.S. Uh, the curriculum was delivered by uh, Dr. Greg Evans, who has a Ph.D. in positive psychology, and he's with the Canadian Positive Psychology Association. And a brilliant course. Um, I walked away with so much value out of there. I finally was able to kind of connect the dots between science and what I was seeing in my clients, seeing in my life. And it was super helpful. And probably one of the most impactful tools I've ever pulled out of there was this uh, little bracelet, which is for those that can't see, it's just, it's a bracelet I wear on my right wrist. It has a certain number of beads. It just, there's no relevance to the number of beads. There happens to be 20 wooden beads. And then there's this little metal nut. I didn't want, it was a choice. I didn't want a little gold bead there. <laughs> uh, what's that say about me if I have gold beads on my wrist? So there's this little stainless steel nut separating um, the wooden beads, there's a two, four, five, six, and those just happens to be the units within positive psychology. So the first one is it's around the PERMA V model. So P stands for positivity and E is for engagement. R is for relationships. M is for meaning and purpose. Um, A is for achievement and V is for vitality. So when I find myself in a, in a, a space of uncertainty, I've learned to embrace the value of uncertainty and I just look at this bracelet and I think, okay, what, where, where is a possible solution? Where's a possible avenue to try something different? And I look at down and I meditate with these. I wear these all the time 
And uh, sometimes people ask, hey, what's that? What, what are those about? Because they have different colors. Uh, that's been a re- it's one of the most impactful tools I left that course with. The content was fantastic. A lot of it I'd already read. Angela Duckworth, Carol Dweck, you know, they're, they're definitely parts of the curriculum. So is Brene Brown. Um, Jonathan Haidt, a psychologist in, out in Toronto. He's, uh, he, his, his content is in there. There's a number. And so the, my curriculum book sits on my desk 24-7, and it's always being referenced. Sounds like overall you've had a shift from when you first started coaching in 2011 until now. You know, you're probably not the same Vince Fowler coach that you were. What's been the biggest shift or change aside from kind of focusing on the widgets of business more towards the owner? Um, how about your practice? What are some of the things that you do with people maybe when they're stuck or when they're um, not operationalizing their power as well as they could? And they've come to you for, for some assistance with that. Really, really good question. And if I had a half an hour to think about it, I'd probably come up with something more articulate. But the fast answer is, in the beginning, I I thought all the, I thought all the answers to every business owner's problem was was an, a lack of understanding and strategy. When someone resisted um, action, when they were resisting their this uh, their any willingness to execute on a particular challenge or problem. My go-to was always, well, let's revisit the strategy and do you understand? Yes, okay, now do it. And then they would they would freeze up. So the biggest shift has been, okay, let's recognize the behavior. What's really happening? Where are they? Where are the breakdowns? Um, Peter Bregman is a leadership guy. Um, he, I think, he writes for Harvard Business Review. He said uh, even the most astute strategist and consultant will miss the fact that when things aren't happening, it's not a strategy problem. It's a it's a behavioral problem. So I, I've, I try to observe and ask questions a lot. Well, I don't try, I, just, I do, but I, I, I really search for a lot of questions and lean in and, and really understand what's the thing behind the thing behind the thing behind the thing. So that, because somewhere it's typically, it's not, the, it's not the absence of resources in their life that's holding them back. It's, it's some sort of resourcefulness. And I go back to, okay, well, back to, you know, your, where are you being, not being resourceful right now? Because there are other organizations in the same industry, same revenue size that are that are dealing with these issues perfectly, and and you're not. So tell me about that. You know they have, you know they have, they're dealing with the same adversity. So why are they winning, and why do you think you're not? I leverage my network. You being one of them. You know what do you know that I can help my client with? Right. So picking the brains of others is another thing that I do. Again, instead of trying to think that I have to have all the answers, leverage my network, you know, is the answer in a book? Is it somewhere else? Is it in my 11-year-old? Is it in my 9-year-old? Because they have some <laughs> wisdom too. Let's talk about parenting. Let's shift gears just a, for a sec because, you know, personal power, I've got three small kids. I've got an 8, 5, and almost 3-year-old. And, I mean, they teach me all mm-hmm, the time. Don't they? Very important lessons. And so maybe what are some of the lessons they've taught you recently? And how do you think about personal power from the perspective of being a parent, being somebody who has like your job is to foster and grow their sense of power so that when they leave the nest, they've, they can take, they can affect change in the world and they can look after themselves and they can do all these things, have all these skills that we want them to have. How do you think about, or has parenting shifted along with your coaching practice? Most um, definitely. Over time? Most definitely. Yeah. You know, having read Carol Dweck book, uh, Mindset, when she 
talked about being smart versus, hey, rewarding. You know, so instead of saying, hey, my daughter does a test, or my son does a test, and they do well on it, in the past, I really would have said, hey, yeah, you're so smart. I've never said smart since, since reading that book. I said, wow, you worked hard on this. Congratulations. And so I always reward their effort. Um, I, I don't care if they win or lose. You know, did you try? Did you put in your best effort? Where did you, where'd you pull up? One of the things that is a dirty word in our house, like in, you know, I grew up in a house that you couldn't swear in. If I swore in my house, I got soap on toothbrush. Now I don't advocate for my kids swearing, but I've made it well known that I can't is worse than saying fuck. So if, if my kids are getting frustrated and say, I can't do this, I'll say, whoa, 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 what's that? And I'll say, I can't do this yet, or I can't do this by myself, or I can't, like, what do we need? Do we need help? Do we need time? Do we need space? We'll finish the sentence. Instead of using can't as an excuse to try, you know, let's explore more. So I, I want to build resilience in my, in my kids, that resourcefulness. Um, and, and I see that now that my daughter is 11, my son is nine, uh, my daughter just got most valuable teammate, which is I struggle with because she's the coach's daughter and she wins most valuable, you know, wins most valuable teammate. I didn't give her the award. Actually, it was another coach that said my daughter deserves the award. And I said, whoa, whoa, what, what about this student? This, you know, what about this athlete and this athlete and this athlete? And she goes, don't even go there. I can give you a list six miles long. So I was like, okay, whatever. But it was, um, I'm seeing the fruits of the labor sort of thing as a parenting. And yes, definitely my parenting has changed as I learn more about coaching adults. I've learned how to be a better parent too. And not just for them, but how do I be a better person myself and be the model that I want my children to follow? Mm-hmm. Awesome. What are, you, what are you working on these days from a personal perspective, personal power, when you think about, and that's a pretty big concepts we can yeah thanks for that really big broad question big broad (laughs) question i like big broad questions because then you get uh interesting conversation yeah um so i yeah i've there are all sorts of little things i'm working on uh one of the things is is writing i want to write more and so i've created some space and some time and i made a really easy way to win i have a commitment to myself to write once a month so that window is really big and I've, and I've so far so good, successful five months in a row. Um, I've focused from, again, staying on a personal side is really focused on nutrition. I used to really, you know, if you can believe it, 20 years ago, I'd, I would, I would be drinking four to five root beer a day, Barks root beer. I'm at a place now where there's very little sugar in my diet. And I still love ice cream and I still have it, but it comes without guilt. Uh, <laughs> it comes without guilt because you're up at six in the morning or 5.30. 5.30. I haven't been in the gym for two <laughs> months. And that was, it was a slippery slope when I got a sinus infection. I couldn't even think straight, let alone go to the gym. But I'm coming back to the gym here shortly. But what I have done is I get up at 5.30 or 6, depending on the the expectations of my day. And it starts with... Um, 15, 20 minute stretch followed by uh, either 13 minutes or 15 minute meditation. And if I want more time after the alarm goes off, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. But I get up early enough so that the first hour of the day is 100% for me. So I've, 
when I do these things for myself first, when I treat myself with respect and kindness and, and value, then I'm a way better coach, way better father, way better husband, way better friend when I serve me first. And then I'm in a really healthy headspace to serve others. And there's this, um, I heard it on a podcast. This lady was promoting meditation and she's probably made more sense about meditation than anyone ever has for me. She said, the value of meditation, so if you think of sleep, Sleep's great. We all know that sleep helps our body recover. But if we go to bed with this crazy story in our head, just just over and over, or the stress or anxiety or something, then now our body's competing with competing with the need to sleep as well as competing with the need to to um, manage this anxiety. So if if we separate the two, I'm going to meditate to deal with the anxiety. I'm going to sleep to deal with bed and, and rest and recovery. We should be better at both. And in my, just in my own experience, I found that to be true. So I meditate to manage the stresses in my life and I sleep to rest. And I've, I've had some, some really, really great sleep that I've noticed. I track it. And, um, again, all of this is so I can be better. So this is my responsibility to me. I was watching one of your webinars where you said as a, as uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing as a professional knowledge worker we have an obligation for self-care i forget exactly how you worded it yeah it's 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 not optional it's, it's ethical. not optional it's ethical right it's ethical. And, and anytime you have power over somebody so parents is a great example right when i'm at my most stressed out and unwell mentally or physically is when i'm worst as a parent right it's when i'm short fused it's when i'm not seeing the underlying needs behind behavior it's when i'm reactive instead of proactive lots of things happen when i'm not getting my own needs met. And so to hear you talk about things like sleep and meditation and nutrition that and exercise, like those components are usually for a lot of us, the ones that are sacrificed first, right? right? They're the ones that's like, well, I'll just stay up a little bit later and do this thing, or I'll just, you know, I won't work out today because I've got this other obligation and it can very quickly, that slippery slope lead us to a place where we're not doing well. And by proxy, anybody who we're responsible for, whether they're our kids or our employees or our clients, if we're you know, in social services, then they're not going to do well, right? They're not going to get our best right. efforts. And, and, and so I, you know, I remember when you said that in the webinar, I was like, hundred percent right, Jeff. Okay. All right, Vince. So I, I talk to myself a lot, um, in my head, uh, I'm trying to actually talk to myself more out, outside of my own head more often. And, and, uh, Dan Pink talks about this where, you know, on the way to a meeting, I might talk out loud to myself. Okay. Are you ready for this meeting? Yes, I am. What makes you feel you're ready? Well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done that. Okay. What if this happens? What if that happens? And I run scenarios, but I have this conversation out loud and his research shows there's significantly much more benefit in this kind of a conversation versus I'm going to kill this meeting. I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be awesome. I'm going to be awesome. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. I'm amazing. Self aspirations work to a, to a point, but they lose their, they lose their ultimate value. Um, if we rely heavily on them. Whereas this kind of discussion with ourself is much more effective and the research would show. So anyways, uh, the other part was Adam Grant's book, most recent one, Give and Take, where he talked about how um, givers without boundaries who don't ask for help, who don't accept help, who don't have any real strong self-care, they really struggle. They do everyone else's work, but they don't do their own. And then therefore they struggle and they do come last. And then, and then they burn out. You know, One of the highest burnout a- areas in 
in around us is in healthcare. You know, here we have these doctors trying to do great things, but they're all, you know, they're burning out because they're always giving to others, not to themselves. And so the givers that actually win and just crush the takers, as he identifies in his book, are the ones who do give to others, but they also have really strong boundaries. They also accept help when offered. They ask for help when they need it. They have a strong healthcare, self-care game. And that's where I aspire to be all the time now. So again, what's my responsibility to part to, to myself so that I can participate in a much more beneficial way in the lives of others and no one else, no one can do push-ups for me. No one can sleep for me. No one can meditate for me. That's all on me. So I have to take care of me first so that I can be better for others. And of course, I'm very fortunate to have, you know, I live in a house. I recognize that my status, you know, I, I recognize all these are benefiting me. So, you know, I would find it a waste if I didn't do my part. Mm-hmm. So there's a sense of obligation almost to, with the power that you know you have yeah. to make sure that you're up, like you're using it in, yeah. in the most beneficial way, whether that's for your clients or for your kids or for your wife. Or, and I don't think know. anyone knowingly wants to go off and do a bad job. I don't really think anybody wakes up and says, how can I screw up someone else's day? I don't think anyone thinks like that. And yet we see that, right? So I go back to, okay, Vince, what are you responsible for? Um, how do you figure that out? How do you, how do you get a sense or how, how do you gauge where your responsibility ends and somebody else's responsibility begins or figuring out where that threshold is, um, inside of a relationship or inside of a context? Cause I, I believe that's probably a pretty contextual question. Um, do you have some strategies? I know you do a lot of reflection. In fact, we were just chatting before the mics went on about moving from reflection to action. So there's Um, a few things. So the polarity loop of action, you know, the upside of action, the downside of action against the upside of reflection and the downside of reflection. That's an excellent exercise. I encourage anyone to try with their organization or their family or whatever. Can you, let's hit the pause button. Can you walk us through? Yeah. So imagine the, the, the symbol for infinite infinity. So on one side of this infinite diagram is we write the word action in the middle and above action, you know, if everybody in the room writes, take four sticky notes and on these four sticky notes on each one, write down what is one upside to action. And is this action aimed at something particular, a problem that's been identified? It's just, what's the upside of action? So they'll say, thing. the answers would be, uh, like, well, stuff gets done. Um, progress. Another upside to action is a feeling of value because look what I've contributed. Another upside to action would be contribution. So, you know, and, and contribution to the top line or the bottom line or the, the, you know, people's feeling of value in the organization. What's the downside of action? Well, if I'm always acting and not resting, well then burnout, fatigue, compromised relationships, um, and so on. Like there's a lot of negatives to just continually burn in the candle at all ends. So on the upside, on the other side of that is, well, what's the, what's the benefit? What's the upside to reflection? Um, we get to slow down, we get to rest, we get to recover, we get to reflect on our results, maybe debrief that and send that over to, uh, back into the action so we can act with more progress. What's the downside of reflection? Nothing gets done. Too much think, group think, um, uh, a sense of uncertainty that we've just, you know, paralysis by analysis. So that my first question to the group then is, okay, so where are you now and where do you need to be? 
And then that turns into a big conversation. And it's with business owners, with entrepreneurs, most of them, the, the vast majority of business owners are very type A personalities, get stuff done. They're very action orientated. They're not always great at reflection. They're not always great at sitting still and just taking a breath. Thank you for that. Cause I, I know that, you know, debriefing from probably your time in the military as well as rugby coaching. Like there's a, there's a heck of a lot of debriefing that I imagine is a part of your practice, um, both yourself and with, uh, with your clients. Can you walk us through what, what a debrief might look like on some sort of time scale? So do you do them quarterly with your clients? Are they like, is every meeting kind of a debrief and action setting meeting or the debrief fits into any, any space, any time. The big ones are the obvious annual AGMs. That's a big debrief. Uh, there's quarterly, um, quarterly resets. I call them resets or offsites. Um, so there's off quarterlies. I, I advocate for all organizations to do an annual. I do in my business for quarterlies. I'm not always as disciplined to do the quarterlies in my business. Uh, we, my wife and I have a debrief every Monday morning. We call it uh, design the week. In the military, there's a debrief from whether it's we've just completed a run and we'll debrief, you know, who's got blisters, who's got hot spots, you know, what's working, what's not working, to uh, a debriefing from a deployment. We've just come back from Somalia. What did we learn? You know, maybe um, Afghanistan, massive amount of debriefs. Canada's involvement in Afghanistan looked a whole lot differently after the first year versus after year 12, right? So, so there's tremendous value in the debrief. And, and we call it act after action review so that maybe there's a firefight. Okay. What's so we have an after action review. There's no, there's no rank in the room. It's just, everyone can speak freely. You know, Hey, this was really effed up. You know, I didn't like this. I didn't like that. Look at, look at where we did well, look at where we struggled. So the kind of questions in any debrief, whether it's quarterly or weekly or however, it would be what's working, what's not working. What do we want to keep? What do we want to throw out? What do we fix, toss, um, forget. And what are some of the barriers for, let's say, at the organizational level for for debriefing, do you see? Is it a bias towards action? Is it the type A, let's just yeah. we don't have time. keep moving? We don't have time. We don't we don't have time. time. Yeah. You know, the economy's cranked. The economy's just tanking right now. We don't got time to sit around and go out of town for two days. Are you kidding me? And yet the feedback from one of the attendees at my most recent, in we went for five days down in Oregon, was I make more money after... I always make more money when I have these annual retreats built into my business. He can connect the dots between revenue increases and bottom line profits when he, and he does, I mean, it's not just this annual with us. He does this, he does these with his own team. Another client just came off of a, he did three days out in Invermere. So you don't have to go far. You know, we don't have to go to Oregon. You can just, you don't even have to leave Calgary, but it's nice to be outside of our normal environment. We can, we just see things through a different lens. But the biggest resistance against it is we don't have time. I hear that I hear that often. So I say, okay, let's pretend we're all Usain Bolt and we're just going to run 100 meters all day, every day. How? And the Olympics are in a in uh, in a month. Or what's our chances of winning? And the answer is always zero. Okay, so how long are you going to keep trying sprinting all day, every day? Mm-hmm. Well, and I see that like we don't have time is. It's bullshit. 100%. We just, we're not prioritizing 100%. it. I don't have time it's, as a BS excuse to prioritizing. Yeah, for basically everything. And I think that that, you know, time management is actually just a priority management problem. And so let's talk about priority setting. How do you, at the individual level, set priorities? Maybe as a, as a boss or as someone with power in an organization, how do you help your organization set priorities? What are your thoughts around 
managing priorities? Effective priorities are a result of knowing what the what the ultimate cause is. What's the, you know, for some, they might say what's the end game for the quarter or the season or whatever. But if we understand what does success look like over a predetermined amount of time and what do we ultimately care about? You know, what is the just cause? What are we willing to go to war for? What are, why do we exist? If we're clear on the vision, the mission, then priorities are just congruent with that. Um, if someone says, Hey, you know, um, let's put some context to it. If we say we're going to bring a food product to market, okay, so why? Uh, Because we think the available food in the market right now isn't actually food. It's heavily processed. It's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. And our product will actually meet the need of the busy person and provide convenience and nutrition in a convenient package. Okay, so that's the thing that we want to solve. Okay, great. So then a priority would be getting the ingredients right. The priority would be sourcing out the right manufacturer who won't, who will, won't want to influence compromising our ingredients. The priorities would be um, working with healthcare, health Canada so that we can not only distribute our product in Canada, but we can also distribute the product in the United States. Whereas, you know, um, is my chair ergonomically correct with my computer with the, with the proportion of, 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 and people can get caught up in the minutia. And that's a goofy one, but I use it as an example that sometimes people's priorities aren't actually congruent with the overall mission. Mm-hmm. When you actually look at people's behavior and how they're spending their time yeah. or their resources, yeah. and you're like, mm, yeah. what does that say about your yeah, priorities? How, how did that become so important? But I, you know, I do a bit of coaching, you know, it's a piece of my practice along with consulting for organizations around development. And that's basically like 95% of my coaching practice is, is this congruent or incongruent yeah. with your priorities? Like, how is this behavior? What does this behavior say about what your priorities are? Because you say they're this, but they're not, you're not meeting them. So you're doing something else. Something else is actually more important. There's some sort of underlying thing. And oftentimes it's, it's ego or it's safety or it's fear or it's like something a bit more And primal. when we pull in the values of the organization and we see behaviors that are incongruent with those values, then then there's some questions to ask, but that's, I mean, the short answer I think is when people are doing something that's incongruent with the ultimate goals of the organization, there's a disconnect from values. There's a disconnect from the, the importance of the ultimate goal. There's a, there's a lack of buy-in for that goal. Uh, like Patrick Lencioni, if we don't, if we don't argue and debate, then no one's going to commit. And therefore it's really difficult to hold people accountable. So, um, so that, that's how I look at priorities is what's, you know, what's a priority. And in, of course, things change again when in, in crisis, then priorities change. But, you know, the, there's an expression I heard the other time once was, uh, and I'm sure you've heard it as well, um, failure is not an option. And that makes sense in policing, in the, in, the, in the military, you know, brain surgery, you know, where life is at risk. Yeah, failure is not an option definitely is a mantra in those environments. However, in typical day-to-day entrepreneurship, failure is an option. There's so many lessons in breaking things. So do the priorities conflict with our ability to break things? Uh, sometimes, you know, like, oh, does that, am I making sense? Because I'm pulling this out of my brain as we speak. But <laughs> That's what podcasts are for, is to have a, a nuanced conversation. Yeah, which I really, re- to, which to I really respect, because sometimes when it's just Q&A, okay, next question, okay, next question, okay, next question, I'm like, okay, I'm bored. As a listener, I get bored, so. <laughs> um, let's talk about you 
And let's talk about your vision and your mission for Vince Fowler and company. Super crystal clear. What is it? So I envision a world where small business owners, entrepreneurs live life on their terms. So that's the vision for that to happen. Um, some way, somehow they need to exercise the courage to pursue a life that's meaningful to them. And I say exercise the courage because courage is a muscle, just like anything else. If we, we either use it or lose it and we need to exercise it all the time. So to do that, to support that, uh, my day-to-day life is literally exploring and curating past and present wisdom and then figuring out how is this relevant to benefit my client. So yesterday I send a, I text a client and I say, Hey, um, super busy guy. Like he's always in an airplane going somewhere, not always work related, but he's often in an airplane and it's okay. Um, and I know he likes to read. I say, Hey, you know, have you read or heard of the, four hour work week. And he said, I've heard of it, never read it. I said, based on where you are right now, I, I think some of Tim Ferriss's advice and reflections would benefit you, especially chapter three and four. So next thing you know, uh, three hours later, he's, I'm 45 minutes in. This is amazing. Thank you so much. So I'm not naive to think that everything I know is the solution for my client. It's that's where this curation comes from. So I'll, I'm, I, if someone has wisdom, I want to learn about it. I've definitely used a lot of your wisdom to help my client. It doesn't have to come from me. So for them to ultimately live life on their terms, what are those terms? Can we define those? Can be very specific with those terms so that we know why we're going to go to work. Okay, now if some of those terms are scary, like one client, I want to take 16 weeks a year off. I have no idea how to keep my business sustainable if I'm going to travel that much. Okay, so you, but you want to do it. Yes, okay, great. So let's identify a few things and let's go for it. So can we be very specific and clear on what success looks like for them? Encourage them to have the exercise to, you know, to exercise that courage to go for it. And then what resources, what tools, what anecdotes, what science, you know, what, what can I leverage to help them get there faster? So it's not a shortcut. It's just, can we advance the learning curve? So based on that vision and mission for yourself, yeah. what are your priorities right now? Like, what are you working on that is top of the top of the stack aside from the day to day, you know, client? Sure. Related? In the background is my own podcast called Trep Life Arena. So Trep Life Arena is a spinoff of what Bernie Brown has brought to us through um, Roosevelt, his arena speech, and um, I had something similar in the past called. The measurable difference. It was my version of TED Talks to to um, benefit small business and entrepreneurs. Uh, just the just the demand of a physical event every two every two months got the best of me after six years. So what I want to do, plus I can only bring wisdom to Calgary. So in the, and very few at a time and whatever. So uh, I decided I'm going to flip this from the measurable difference into uh, Trep Life Arena. And I've already started the Facebook group. I've done a couple other things, but I'm, it's going to ultimately hit a podcast and I'll bring on guests who are in the arena, you know, who, who are avoiding the comments from the cheap seats and, you know, just show that the success of their success is great. Let's not forget they're human beings. Let for, let's not forget that they had their struggles going through it. So really unpacking those struggles because so many times we hear people who have struggled yeah, I was depressed. I spent 16, this is my story. I, I was depressed and I spent 16 months unemployed. And then, 
you know, I got my shit together and I got a job. What? Just, just like that? Huh? Hmm. So I'm very curious. Okay, let's go there. How did we get through this? And could others benefit from that story that, Hey, I'm, I get it. I can relate to that. So that's what I'm really curious about. So setting up that, setting up that podcast is the big nut and then continuously writing, which is a curation of other, others wisdom. Can we, can we hit pause, yeah. rewind slightly mm. and let's take the opportunity to dig into that, the arena, your challenge in the arena. So your biggest challenge, um, in this entrepreneurship journey and how you got through it. And cause that's, this is about personal power. This is about the ability to affect change in the world at a high level. And I agree with you. I think that we need to be able to dig in to like what actually happened as opposed to the, yes, I'm, you know, this, I was struggling and then now I'm not right. Like that's not actually that helpful. Yeah. And it's so like a sitcom. Let's pre- problems are solved in 30 minutes. Exactly. Let's use this as an opportunity to advertise your upcoming trip life arena talks, your podcast, which when is it launching? We, ha- we don't have a date yet. I'm slowly marinating. I'm out. I'm beyond contemplation mode. I'm now in the, so if anybody's following the science of achievement, I've moved through contemplation. Now I'm in the planning phase. I don't have a hard start date. Just knowing. I'll, I'll okay, push you please on do. It. And I know you well, and you have in the past, which I really appreciate. So was the question, you know, what were the, one of the hard things I. Well, you, you mentioned being unemployed yeah. and 16 months of unemployment and. Okay. Yeah. I finished my. I'm, I'm not fired. I, at Edge School for Athletes, where I was a strength and conditioning coach and athletic coordinator, uh, just the nature of the economy. The circumstances were that, you know, re-enrollment and went down, tuition went up, and we had less staff and all these different things, or sorry, less students and all these things. So the school had to cut fat, and I was some of the fat on the on the balance sheet, and they they invested in this strength and conditioning coach out of Florida, uh, Tampa Bay, um, Andy O'Brien, which he, he did a phenomenal job. So at any rate, it was the third time I was either fired or let go or not renewed. And in my head, I took it. The first time I was fired in my life was, okay, everyone gets fired. Second time I got fired, I was like, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm, I wonder if it's me. Third time I didn't get, you know, in this case, I, my contract wasn't renewed. I definitely took it as a personal hit. Something's wrong with me. I am not good enough. I am not enough and everyone else is better. So I was screaming in the shame. I was screaming in scarcity and I was screaming in, in uh, comparison. And I had no, I had no courage to ask for help. So that's how I ended up getting really depressed. My wife would go to work and I would play video games, uh, which was really weird because I've never been a video game addict. I have no issues with video games, but I, it became a, a numbing agent. I'm very aware of the consequences of alcohol abuse. So I didn't go there, but I doubled down on the whole video game, numb out from reality. So, um, so it was hard. It was really hard because I, I didn't feel like I had lots of emotions. I struggled. I didn't feel worthy. You know, all I have from a formal education background is I've got grade 12. That's it. You know, I graduate grade 12. I'm in the army a year later. Um, and being in the army, I was infantry. I mean, the, the obvious skills of the infantry, shooting, marksmanship, playing with knives, uh, playing with explosives and these different things, those aren't immediately transferable into the private sector. So I, I'm weird. So I was also feeling, okay, you know, I don't regret my time in the military, but 
again, I have these skills. I was the top candidate on my machine gun course. Well, uh, ammo, ammunition management. Okay, ammunition management. How do we translate that into a, a, a viable benefit in the private sector? Ammunition management. Hmm. Target acquisition. I'm really good at identifying targets and blasting them. How do we, you know, so I struggled. I really, really struggled. I felt pretty worthless. You know, just as an aside, the I often talk about the most dangerous question that anybody could ever ask themselves, and it's it's that question: "What's wrong with me?" Yeah. It's that because that sends us that doesn't no good road, no. you know, no that doesn't lead us anywhere. Yeah. It leads us into shame. It leads us into guilt. It leads us into numbing the pain that that question brings about. Comparison, like all uh, I say, often put a magnifying glass on anything, and we're going to find imperfections, even a bottle of water. You know, we'll find an imperfection if we put a large enough magnifying glass on it. Well, that's all I did. I put a magnifying glass on everything that was wrong with me or that I felt was wrong with me. So when my wife says to me, you know, hey, you've been unemployed for 14 months, 15 months now. If you don't have a job by Christmas, this is August 2010. If you don't have an early August 2010, if you don't have a job in six and three months, we're bankrupt by Christmas. Um, I'm, it was like a big punch in the stomach, a big, and a, and a mirror pops up and, and I just like, wow, how did we get here? Uh, how am I going to get out of this? Uh, what can I do about it? And I have this tattoo on my right forearm from my time in the military and I happen to look at it and I just thought, well, if I can do that, can I, can I do this? And I started to do an inventory of all my assets, tangible and intangible assets. Well, I'm, in spite of the last 16 months, I'm somewhat resilient. (laughs) I'm physically strong. I've got all these different experiences. How do I bottle that up? How do I, you know, how do I, how do I make this desirable? And I came to the conclusion between my athletic background and coaching athletics and, you know, my years of the military, my years in business, business sales. Um, I thought, is it possible I could be a sales manager slash business coach? Because sales manager requires a university degree. I don't have one, still don't have one. So, hmm. So I'm probably not going to end up as a sales manager anywhere because a lot of places have these policies, got to have a degree in any discipline. So how do I answer that question? And I threw down, I'm a business coach. I had no idea it was a real industry or a real word. Zero, but I was picked up by a firm and I, um, my resume was found by a firm online, Workopolis or something. And uh, yeah, they invited me in for an interview and I, I started doing some business development. Eight months later, I got my coach certification and I've been never looked back. But I, it all came back to, okay, you know, what am I responsible for? And a, a previous question you asked here was, you know, what are some of the things? So yes, what am I control of? What do I not control? But number two is responsibility and fault. Mark Manson talks about this in The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. And he said, so, so my circumstances might not be my fault. Like it's not, my, it's not necessarily my fault I'm fired. The economy had a lot to do with my, not with my firing at edge school, but my, my, you know, my exit. But what am I responsible for? So while nothing was my fault, what am I responsible for? And that's also a go-to headspace. What, am I, what do I control? What am I going to focus on? What I can or can't control? But what am I responsible for? And that's a great question for myself to say, okay, 
you know, I look at my client, they're not achieving the things we thought they would achieve. Not my fault, but where, where's, where's my responsibilities going forward when they win? Not my fault or it's not my fault that they won. It's not my fault that they're awesome. But, um, yeah, but where does fault and responsibility lie in the, in this moment of adversity? Thank you for walking us through that because there is a lot of value in, in these conversations about where we've stumbled and picked ourselves back up. Because when we talk about grit and resiliency and growth mindset, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in education primarily, but helping profession more broadly is that it's just another label. You're either gritty or you're not, you're, you're a growth mindset or you're a fixed mindset. And it's like, well, actually, no, like it's not that linear and it's contextual and, and it's an evolution, evolutionary process of, of growing our mindset and developing grit. Um, so having an actual, like a walkthrough like that of an experience I think is useful because, you know, in that responsibility fault is, is great as well because the, you know, I always tell people you're responsible for what you're responsible for. And if you have power what your responsibility is, is the contexts and the conditions in which other people find themselves in. So, you know, it's impacted my parenting as much as my, my leadership and my coaching and everything else that I do. It's, you know, I'm not responsible for my son to make his bed because that has to be mm-hmm. his, but I am responsible for the conditions Correct. in which it's more likely that he's going to want to make yeah. his bed because he sees the value in that. And that aligns with, with what he needs. My wife and I had a very similar conversation about homework with our daughter. Uh, she's, her first year of middle school, grade six. And up until now, she's never had homework. And um, so she's, well, it's not our responsibility. Well, it's our responsibility to create the environment where homework is addressed and dealt with. It's, you know, um, but you're right. It's not our, it's her responsibility to do the homework. It's our responsibility to create an, an environment and a routine so that she can be successful when she does her homework. So, and, and Carol Dweck and Angela Duckworth, both of them have said, I believe multiple times in their books where like Carol Dweck has certainly has said, we can be fixed in one area and growth in another. And it's, again, it's not super linear. There's times in my life where I definitely recognize I've got a fixed mindset and I had a real fixed mindset about my worthy and my value to the community. Uh, I don't have a degree, therefore no one's going to hire me. Well, once I got over that and recognized people are looking for a solution not, not necessarily a degree, especially in, in business. Um, Shell HR department will bring in a speaker and they might have to have some T's to cross and some I's to dot. And their, their, their guest speaker very well might have to have a degree in X, Y, or Z. I get it. Don't care. Not my target market, first of all, but, uh, I've have, I've had clients and do have clients who have degrees, very significant degrees, MBAs, and quite possibly my next client has two PhDs one in organizational psychology, and here she's coming to me for some sort of solution. We'll find out if that's, but it, it's my absence of education is not, formal education is not even, a, uh, it's not even a discussion piece, not relevant. In fact, the referrals that she got f- from others to me is, she goes, well, if, if, you, if so-and-so says you're great, then that's good enough for me. And secondly, if I get it, great. If I don't get it, great. I'm not gonna go home and say, oh, I'm not good enough. Uh, I struggle with, um, comparison more than good enough, but I, I, not in this case. What's, where's your, where's your growth edge 
maybe personally or professionally right now? Like, what do you really, I know you've come out of your positive psychology course, and we talked a little bit about the podcast that you're launching and like the, the tangibles, but right. at a more personal level, um, where are you wanting to grow and where might you notice that you're a bit fixed? Because I know you've been doing lots of reflect, reflecting yeah, late. Heavy on the reflection side. I just listened to a podcast with um, Annika, uh, sorry, Danica Patrick. She's retired from NASCAR on Impact Theory with Tom Bilyeu. And she made a comment on her Instagram account that her, she's basically saying that what she's, her podcast and Tom Bilyeu's podcast are very similar. And she's great that they're in that space. And she gets, she gives a shout out to anybody else in the world of podcasts who's doing content similar to this. And she said, we're a community and collectively, our collective wisdom, our collective efforts will make the world a better place. And it was the, it was exactly what I needed to hear at the time because I was still like, okay, what do I, what, who am I? I'm just Vince Fowler. Who am I going to, like, I'm not Tom Bilyeu. I'm not uh, Danica Patrick. But then all of a sudden it was like, she gave me, no, no, Vince, listen, we need you in the room too, because you're going to talk to people we won't. I was like, oh yeah, of course, of course, of course. So that's, that was the ultimate triggered. Okay. Let's pour some gas on this particular fire. So I, I did get caught up in a bit of a fixed mindset. Oh, I'm just, I'm just Vince Fowler. What do I have to say? Yeah. So I, I sell myself short. Sometimes I still do. I work more and more. I, it's less and less all the time. But I remember reading an article with uh, Sarah Blakely, who's the CEO of, of Spanx. And she's a, you know, it's a billion dollar organization. The question to her was, you know, where do you struggle? And she said, self-doubt. And when I heard that said, I was like, okay, so she's a human being. And that means all billionaires are human beings, which means millionaires are human beings, which means, you know, hundred thousandaires are a billion. A human being. Oh, okay. I'm safe. I'm good. I, yeah, I'm, I'm in a good place. So yeah, that's the imposter syndrome. I think that we all wrestle with who am I to know this and yeah. who am I to have this opinion or this expertise. And I do see it in the, in the, through the lens of my clients, I see them struggling with the same things, which has been, you know, one of the benefits of doing what I do is the amount of growth I get from just watching and observing my clients go through their struggles I, through osmosis, learn too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm incredibly blessed to have the pe- to work with the people I work with. They're incredibly special. I love every single one of them. Well, we should wrap this up soon. It's been about an hour of your time. And this is on top of another 15 or 20 minutes that I spent on uh, on grit already on this podcast. So this is going to be a long one for folks. Um, extra, extra walk around the block with the dog if you're listening to hey, it. Hey, if you're still listening on the end of this, uh, on the end of this time slot, then you're uh, you're awesome and you need to send us a text and tell us that you or send it connect with us and say you listened this far and would love to hear your th- you know to the person listening would love to hear you know any takeaways and if there's any uh, if there's any burning questions too like you know you know Jeff Vince you did you said this but I I didn't you know it was like I didn't hear the tail end of that what what happened what happened what, what was the end of that story or something we've probably left a few hanging there's a few loops hanging loops in there I'm sure where can people find you if they want Vince to? VinceFowler.ca is the easiest place to remember and go. VinceFowler.ca. That'll take... And I'll have links in the show notes. And everything. So that'll go to... Uh, that'll land on my multiple websites. Uh, Vince Fowler is also Instagram. Vince, Vincent A. Fowler is is Facebook. But VinceFowler.ca uh, is the perfect place to go. It's a hub for everything else. Resources, Resources recommended. Podcast to listen to, book to read something I can link up in the show notes, something that's impacted you lately. I know like we'll have grit and growth mindsets and we'll have some of Tom Bilyeu's uh, podcast that you've mentioned. 
Um, anything else? Most common podcasts I listen to right now are um, is the Impact Theory with Tom Bilyeu. I listen to um, Dr. Gundry, who is uh, he speaks about nutrition and health and the benefits of intermittent fasting, which is also a secret weapon of mine, intermittent fasting. And uh, as far as books go, I read a lot of books, but I don't read a lot of books, if that makes any sense. I read the same book multiple times. And so uh, right now I'm reading Tim Ferriss's For Our Work Week again. I'm also reading Everything Is Fucked, um, a, a Message About Hope by, Tim, uh, by uh, Mark Manson. Loving that book because he has so many additional resources he, he puts in this book. He's definitely done his research. Well, thank you again for carving out the time. And I look forward to pestering you about the launch of Trep Life Arena, the yes. podcast. Yes. With I will Valley. benefit from and peer accountability. Well, thanks again, and uh, have an awesome day. Thanks, pal. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode where we talked a little bit about grit to start things off and deconstructed it a little bit. And then we talked to one of the grittiest guys I know, Vince Fowler, who is a business coach in Calgary, Alberta. Stay tuned for next week's episode where we're going to talk about the power of human nature. So we're going to take a, take a look at things like addiction, anxiety, and depression through the lens of how these things make sense in our lives. And we're going to take a look at a few snippets from my own TEDx talk from a few years ago. So episode three, cue it up, and we will talk to you soon. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and drop us a rating or a review. It really helps us reach a wider audience and have a bigger impact in the world.